Welcome to the Dose of Caesar, the podcast that runs experiments, explores new ways of thinking, and talks to the most interesting people that I've met around the world. Today, I am honored to have Dr. Aline Bumpus. She is the Associate Vice President of the Longhorn Center for Academic Excellence, otherwise known as LCAE, which is the academic portfolio of the Division of Diversity and Community Engagement at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Dr. Bumpus holds a PhD in educational leadership and research from the University of Southern Mississippi. To me, Dr. Bumpus is one of the people who helped lead my study abroad program in Beijing, China in 2017. Um, and she was actually the person that advised us to write a letter back home, which was an actually a great exercise um, because it, it was it was towards the beginning of when I started journaling a lot and and that writing that letter when I got home and, and I read that letter, I could see the the power the the power of the of, of the written word. Um, but was was you no longer hold that position was what you just messaged me? I'm sorry. Yes, um, yes, I am now associate professor of practice in the College of Education, where I can continue oh. to um, teach my course, my new uh, study abroad course, which is in Costa Rica. And we'll talk about that later. Gotcha. 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 Yeah, I'm sorry, Dr. Bumpus. I tend to just keep talking, but welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to come. Come on here. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And it's so great to be with you. Gotcha. So you... um. You, you have a new program to Costa Rica? Yes. So after we launched the two programs, first was China, if you mm -hmm. recall, Beijing, China. Yes. And then uh, we had uh, the programs that Dr. Moore, he launched one. And that one was to Cape Town, yeah. South Africa. Uh, the other one that I wanted to launch, and you were, I believe, in the center at that time, we were building student leaders, and we mm -hmm. had the Student Leadership Institute. So I am teaching a course that I developed in student leadership, and the name of the course is Socially Responsible and Ethical Student Leadership. And we go to Costa Rica, uh, a sustainable country, mm -hmm. and the students are involved in building projects focused on sustainability with the emphasis of being high performing teams. Gotcha, gotcha. What does a what is a sustainable country? I'm sorry. I don't Yes, yes. So it's a country that the majority of their emphasis is on how to sustain the country in its natural state. Oh, so gotcha, uh, gotcha. there were several programs where even three and four year olds were taught to recycle reuse and reduce. Wow. So this is really from the grassroots up. Our students had an opportunity to work beside servant leaders who were also focused on building this intergenerational process of mm -hmm. moving the country towards sustainability in all walks of life. Wow. So Dr. B, you were one of the people that actually created the program in Beijing? That you created yes. both... Yes, Dr. I didn't know that. Dr. Moore, yes, Dr. Chen and Dr. Moore um, invited us to join them in, in writing this program. And we got a great uh, start with the Coca-Cola Foundation, who provided us funding mm. to take students just like you to Beijing, China. What was it about, um, you know, that program of China that interested you? Why, why did you, were you interested in helping build that? Why did you think it was important? Good question. Dr. Moore and I had had several conversations about 
getting students in the worldwide space. And mm-hmm. what does that mean? And one of the areas that he was looking at uh, was involving social entrepreneurship. And through our research, we found that a great experience for students would be getting the opportunity to blend with other social entrepreneurs in a global space. And as you recall from your trip, you met so many entrepreneurs, but you also met people who were doing their work because they wanted to make a difference in their community. Mm The Dandelion School, right? Which is one of those wonderful social responsibility experiments, and it's going very well, where you see migrant children who don't have access to education getting an opportunity to come to a residential program. The the uh, that dandelion school was where we had the opportunity to teach English for the whole month, Um, and it was just an incredible experience. How did you how did you find the dandelion school? Um, as a, you and Dr. Moore and everyone who was um, creating the program, because that's one of the things that I wondered as you were making the pro, mm-hmm. as we were going through the program, I wondered, how did you guys find all these people? Yeah. Well, you know, Caesar, it's uh, about networking, right? Which mm-hmm. you are learning to do and doing it very well, by the way. Oh, but as you develop professional relationships, wherever you go, you take back with you a memory of a strong relationship. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Chin, Dr. Ga Chin had a colleague who had shared with her about this program as we were building the program. We were looking for an opportunity for our students to engage in a social entrepreneurship program that was really worldwide. And as you recall, the Dandelion School brings students from all over the world mm-hmm. to yeah. that space. Yeah. So it was through Dr. Chin that we found that opportunity. Wow. Wow. Um, and I, I do want to continue talking about China a little later on. Uh, but I, before we, we continue talking, I wanted to know more about you because I realized I don't really know much of your background. And so I have some questions that okay. perhaps are going to allow me to understand more about you when you uh, were younger. And so my first question is, what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were 13 years old? When you were 13, what did you dream of being when you grew up? A teacher. A teacher. Wow. Yeah, I had that dream around seven, eight years old when I would take all of our dolls and put them on little wooden chairs and in front of that time was a chalkboard and teach my dolls. So I had remarkable teachers coming up in elementary school. Certainly that was during the segregated times. So Mm -hmm. I had teachers who looked like me and who really seemed from that perspective as a kindergarten and first grader, just like my mom or just like my dad. Mm -hmm. And I felt that they loved me first. They cared for me and I was willing to do anything to keep my teachers happy. So that relationship building, I think really impacted me. It gave me a sense of confidence that I probably would not have received had I not had such caring teachers in those formative years. So it's always been wanting to teach. Wow. And, and when you got older, as you went to college, um, did you did you have an idea of what who what group of students you wanted to teach, whether they were, you know, elementary kids or high school or has it always been higher education? No, it started out in elementary. <clears throat> so my first years after graduation were years spent as a speech pathologist. What, I got what, my degree in speech pathology. What is it? What does a speech pathologist do? 
So a speech pathologist is what many people refer to as a speech therapist, Mm -hmm. someone who assists individuals with communication challenges. Uh, Some of the common uh, communication disorders that you hear about are stutterers. For example, President Biden and what he shared with the country about Mm. his challenges stuttering. So that's an example. Uh, But we also worked with students who had auditory processing challenges, right? What we hear and what they hear and how they interpret that can be a barrier if they're having those perceptual difficulties. So a speech pathologist is someone who specializes in oral and nonverbal communication. Wow. Wow. And and, um, through that, how many years did you work as a speech pathologist? Close to 22 years. 22? Wow. Yes, from pre-K all the way up through middle school. And after that, I became a principal. So I had an opportunity to intern in high school. And I realized there are some age levels that I just could not be as effective with. Hmm. What age levels were that? <laughs> Those actually were the middle schoolers. Really? What, what was what was the what was the difficult part? Is it because they're getting more rebellious at 13? <laughs> you would think so. I believe it had a lot to do with my role because I was itinerant, meaning I didn't see each student every day. Mm. So many students I saw a maximum of two times a week. So the inability to develop relationships yeah. with the students was very critical. And for me, those middle school ages are ages where relationships matter. If you think about middle school when you were there, mm-hmm. some of your best teachers in middle school were the ones you had a strong, solid relationship with. Mm. And um, what did you, because you worked with a very specific group of students, you know, like you were, you were talking about how these students had a lot of, uh, uh, they had a lot of adversity that they had to face. And just by me doing this podcast and speaking to people, I've learned so much about myself and human relationships. What did you learn, um, you know, teaching these kids for 22 years, a specific group of kids? What did you learn about people? If there's anything that comes to mind. Wow, that's a conversation for a day or so, but I'm going to want to distill it down to about four major things. One is that everyone, whether they are preschoolers, middle schoolers, high schoolers, parents, Mm -hmm. relatives, everyone wants to do their best. Mm. And their level of doing their best is not always the same. So the one thing that I learned was how important it was to be nimble. And that still holds true, Caesar, right here in the work that I'm doing now, is to be able to switch when it's time to switch adaptability. You know, when we were visiting with you all in China, one of the things we wanted you to do is be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yes. Remember that? Yes. Taking it as it goes and you may come out with a plan, but it may not end up being that. So I think that still holds true today. One of them is being nimble and adaptable. Mm. Uh, The other thing that I have learned from my students, including you, is that all students and their parents have big dreams for each other. Yeah, everybody does. Yeah, right. They have big dreams. And I saw myself as one helping to unlock the challenges to those dreams because dreams can just float away once an individual meets a barrier or a challenge thinking they can't push through. Mm. 
And that takes me to the third thing is that we're all very resilient. We don't think we are, but even in its smallest sense, being resilient serves us in so many ways. Number one, it reinforces our ability to stick with it. And it helps us to resolve the fact that we are worth it. So this whole self-concept, mm. all of that is intertwined with one's resiliency. Wow. You were going to say something? I'm sorry. I would say the last thing I think that I learned, uh, and I, it holds true with my family, is that when you surround yourself with people who are supporting you, mm. you're always going to move forward. Wow. Maybe not so fast, but you're constantly moving forward. It's when your surroundings are not as um, compatible with your dreams and support. Mm. You may find that you don't get there as fast as you thought you would. You know, this is something that I've thought about a lot in the last year, like about how the the people around you are so important you know, especially how they view you and whether they're supportive or not. And I just think about how lucky I was to grow up with parents who always supported my dreams. Mm -hmm. um, but I know that, you know, growing up, I saw kids who didn't have the same support, you know? Mm -hmm. And and so I wonder for those kids, I mean, I know, I think one of the biggest things, right, for them is, is good teachers, right? Because the mm -hmm. teachers become the support system. Mm -hmm. But if, if like there's anybody, if there's any kids listening, um, what advice do you give them as in like to, for navigating relationships, you know, they can be in high school, um, but what advice do you give them if they are surrounded with perhaps family that doesn't support them in their dreams? Mm -hmm. You know, Cesar, I am uh, of the opinion that oftentimes we as humans, Mm -hmm. We dwell more on our challenges. We dwell more on our imperfections. We dwell more on our negative side that we forget there's also this strong positive side. Mm. So having said that, even if there is a very close relative that doesn't seem to bring that positive energy into your life, yeah. there are other family members that may be just as competent in helping you to see yourself in a positive way mm. than that particular uh, family member. Now, not everyone comes from a large family. And when I say family, it could be someone in your church. If you are a person who attends church, it could be someone in your recreation center. Mm. It could be a teacher. Think about the number of students who have share that the person who made the biggest impact in their life was, was their teacher. So to students, young people, I say, find that person that believes in you, supports you, and wants to see you move forward. Mm. Dr. Vincent, uh, who uh, was the first vice president for diversity and community engagement in the, at the Division of Diversity and Community Engagement mm -hmm. at UT, he talked about having your own board of directors. Oh, this is an amazing idea. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. So those are people over your entire life. Mm. 
that have been mentoring you, whether it was a formal mentoring relationship or something just happened and you clicked. So I often say to students in in Dr. Vincent's words, find your board of directors Hmm. and ask them. You know, I think our students, sometimes you're afraid to ask someone that you admire and look up to for their support. But step out there. That's that risk taking that we want to encourage you to do. But I often find that when students step out there and they ask an individual and that person's invested in them anyway, otherwise students have that feeling. Yeah. That individual is probably ready to step up and say, I can support you in whatever you need. Or I can support you in this way. Wow. Yeah. It's a, uh, I mean, I think it's so important to get out of, like you said, get comfortable with discomfort. Cause I remember, I mean, I remember being in high school and not, I mean, just kind of any idea I had, I would shoot it down immediately because I thought it wasn't going to happen. I thought that I wasn't good enough. When in fact, now looking back, I mean, you know, I was, I was a great student and a lot of teachers would have loved to like help me out, but it's just, it's just the thing about reaching out. But it's so, when you're a student, it's so difficult because you're so in your head. And, and now that you've seen, you've gone into higher education what have you seen helps kids get out of their comfort zone most? Because, right, you can say, you can tell kids, get out of your comfort zone. <laughs> but it, but it's like, you know, most kids won't do it because it's, it's a difficult thing to do. But have you seen anything that has worked where it's like kids are forced to get out of their comfort zone and, and, and then they, they realize that, oh, it's not that scary after all? Mm-hmm. Uh, abroad. Really? <laughs> I'm going to start here. Do you remember when Dr. Lou uh, had everyone go on a scavenger hunt? I, you know what? I was late that day because I arrived late for my plane because it was the first day. But I, I, I was told that everybody had to go on a scavenger hunt. But right. can, can you describe how Dr. Lou issues the challenge? Yes. Uh, here we are in China. Yes, Many of China. us, including me, we're <laughs> in Beijing, China. We don't speak Chinese. Right. Yeah. Most of us, at least. (laughs) And we had to find our way down to certain parts of the city. So you're given a map, you're giving a fare card and you had to gather together with other students in the class because everyone worked in their own little what we call Mm -hmm. zoos, I think is what we call them. Uh, But you work within your group to problem solve and figure it out. So I often say to students, when you are put in a situation, who can you lean on? You remember the the game that they used to call, I can't remember the name of it, is it Call a Friend? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Right? So oftentimes when you are put in an uncomfortable situation, the first thing you have to do is be resourceful. So Mm. I say to students, look at it as a puzzle. Because it is. You're right. <laughs> it's just a puzzle. How do you, what resources are right there in front of you or that you can reach out to to help you solve that? And seeing this whole experience as being an exercise in adaptability, mm. an exercise in being able to think on your feet and exercise in ways of being resourceful that you never thought. When you said earlier, you know, there are all these things that I did feel I was good at, but if you had had the opportunity to problem solve on your own, Mm -hmm. you would have mastered many of those. Because each time you get that experience of being successful, 
you're ready to go back again, right? Yes, yes. Every time you you figure it out, I mean, it, it reminds me of like, it kind of, in some sense, in in a small sense, kind of like deadlines. I I always feel like I've, I'm good at the end of deadlines. Like I, that's a bad thing because I procrastinate. But is how is it that I've had a month to do it, but in the last like two days, I figure out how to do it. You know, I, I figure out how to make it happen. When for a month I've been thinking I don't know how to tackle this. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think it's just, it's, it's what you're talking about. It's, it's that I start using what's around me. I'm like, it's due in two days. I have to do something. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like the, the choice of just sitting back and saying, I'm not even going to try anything is not an option anymore. But I think, um, I think what you mentioned about the call a friend thing is very important because you don't have to do it by yourself. You have all the people around you. And I think that was one of my pitfalls that I would fall into where I thought, I have to do everything myself, but no, we have like all these people around us ask questions. It's one of the most powerful things, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder if uh, most students feel this insecurity of reaching out because they think they should know it, right? If they should know the answer Mm -hmm. or they should know how to do it. I think, I think that's part of it. From my experience, I just, before I even start the email that I'm going to reach out, mm-hmm. I would begin to assume what the other person would say, which is, mm-hmm. you know, has, it has no basis. Like it's, it's, I just say it's mostly criticism. Like I start thinking, why would you ask me this question? You know, it's such an unhelpful voice when mm-hmm. that's like not how any human being is. Most people, humans, I don't think I've ever met a human that is like that mean, yeah. But I think that's part of it because it, uh, we want to be perfect, especially kids who go to UT, who go to universities. Mm-hmm. We've practiced being getting A's all the time. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things that I've had to unlearn recently. The notion that uh, of, of being perfect, yeah, perfectionism. Because if you try to get everything right all the time, then you avoid being wrong. Mm-hmm. And then there's no learning. You, mm-hmm. you, you kind of, I mean, there is some learning, but it's not as, as fast and as big as it could be because mm-hmm. once, once you're okay with failing, you Sorry. know, it's, you can learn so much more and you take hey. so many more risks because hey. risks don't even seem the bigger risk is not doing it. Exactly. You've heard the saying fail small. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when you're failing small, you're learning something from that failure. Uh, and many times do we tend to over exaggerate how big it is. For example, mm-hmm. in the big scheme of life, it may not be a big failure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So failing small is a great way to practice. As my mom would say, dust off your butt and get up. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it really is a way to fail within a sphere of comfortability where you aren't as concerned about the failures you thought you were Mm. riding a a ride at an amusement park, right? Mm -hmm. The fear of not getting on is more than the joy of getting ready to jump in that seat and go down. And then once you've you've built up this confidence, you're going to do it. You turn around five or six times (laughs) and you say, well, you know, everybody else is doing, why can't I try it? But it's getting to that point, right? Yeah. 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 The the, the starting, the beginning is, is like, it's the scariest part, but once you, you get there, 
um, it's okay. When did you start um, consciously or when did you start failing small or taking small leaps, as I would call it? When did you start seeing the benefit in going after uh, failing in your life or mm-hmm. go, go, going after trying things? Mm-hmm. I think it was elementary school. Really? Mm-hmm. That's so young. Well, in elementary school, um, there's so many dynamics and there's some things that just stick in my memory. For example, mm-hmm. I lived in a state, Kentucky, so we had snow. And when you're going to kindergarten, you put on this big snowsuit. Oh, wow. Right? <laughs> I have to walk to school where our neighbors school. So when we would get to kindergarten class, we sat in the little chairs in the front of the room and the kindergarten teacher would help us take off our snowsuits. <laughs> I refused to wear a snowsuit. Only because I didn't want the teacher to help me. Mm. And it wasn't about not wanting her to help me as much as it was. I thought I should be able to do it myself. Right. That means that I can't do it. So if I can't do it, why am I taking up her valuable time? There are 10 of us sitting up there with these big snowsuits. (laughs) It takes time to get them off. But I think the other part of the failure is when I uh, decided that I would go in the competition for spelling bee in fifth grade. Oh, wow. Nobody, nobody forced you to do that. You just chose. I decided I'd do it. And what led me to that, it's kind of a crazy story, was we actually had art in school where you got to make all kinds of things, right? So Mm -hmm. I had uh, pitched a little, at that time, my mom and dad smoked. So I made a little ashtray. And I was so proud. My, we had gotten it glazed and come out the kiln and I was running down the steps and I dropped it. Uh, yeah, I just dropped it and I cried and cried and could not get over that. And my mom said, that's OK. You'll have another chance. You'll have another chance. And when she said that, I thought I will never have another chance to make another ashtray. And she came to my bedroom that night and she said, when I mean you'll have another chance, it may not be that. It's almost like she saw the expression on my face. Yeah. She may did. not be that Ashley, but you'll have a chance to step out again and you'll be afraid to fail. But if you don't step out, you don't know if you could ever do it. Wow. So that's why I decided, well, this is a chance to step out there. And I stepped out and I competed in that spelling bee. Uh, what did you do? You remember what you thought afterwards? Did you think, oh, that wasn't that bad? <laughs> because I won the spelling bee, right? Oh, you won? But I, yes, wow. but I never would have thought in my wildest dreams first mm-hmm. to enter a spelling bee, and two that I would even win. So yeah. I think each step that we take in our lives leads to the next step, mm-hmm. and that might lead to a few more failures. Mm-hmm. You've heard this other saying. I've heard no before. Wow. Right? Yeah. You've heard you're not accepted. You've heard, no, this is not for you. You've heard those. So that playback loop is going to always be out there. So each of us who strive for the big ring, we must accept the failure's got to be a part of that. Hmm. Right? Yeah. It's a, it's a thing that I learned in, in sales, you know, and emailing people where, where it's, whether it's, you know, trying to get a client for the podcast, like it's somebody that I want to help build the podcast, or if I want to get a guest on, right. It's a lot of people are going to say no, or some people are going to say no, but 
I'm so grateful for like my first job, which was involved just emailing hospital executives. And I just got used to people saying no or not replying, Mm -hmm. but it was so scary in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's, that's so such a powerful thing to carry with you that I've heard no before. I love Mm -hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When was the for- first time you went abroad? The first time I went abroad, yeah. meaning abroad, abroad, uh, abroad, abroad. Yeah. Like, um, well, I say abroad, abroad, meaning yes, I went to the Bahamas. Gotcha. Uh, I'll, I'll rephrase the question. Yeah. When was the first time <laughs> that you were out of your comfort zone in another country where you were like, oh, this is different? I got to yes. adapt. China with you. <laughs> what? what <laughs> What, 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 uh, what about it got you out of your comfort zone? Um, oh my, I think one thing was about getting through customs. Oh, you know, what was it about? I don't remember the yeah. customs. Part. Well, I do remember when we were preparing for customs, and I, I do pack heavy, mm-hmm. so I had quite a bit of luggage, <laughs> and I had this worry that I would be the one person who they would not clear for customs because I got too much in my bag. <laughs> and things that I would bring in might be some form of contraband. You know? <laughs> so that was my first fear when I stepped on the ground in China. But gotcha. yeah, that was my first experience. I I went along with you as a student and learned while you were learning. Wow. What did you did you learn any uh, Mandarin? Um, yes. what, yeah. like what was the was it as like mine because mine I think I just knew how to say hello she had, I just knew the basics there did were, were you more advanced no I was learning the common greetings uh-huh. and I was learning the phrases for engaging people socially not that when they talked to me I would understand it yeah but I would I really love the the phrase she shit Right. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. That that was a way to connect your heart and your feeling of gratitude with an individual. You know, mm. it's you and it's me and we're exchanging something. And I get that opportunity to thank you for giving me that. Right. Yes. But no, my Chinese uh, capability was not as strong as I wanted it to be. But like you, I survived. Yeah. And you know what? I It was in China because I went to China. And then I went to Thailand and these two countries, I discovered how it's incredible how you can connect with a human being with very little language. You can create, I don't know if you saw that, Dr. B, but I, I, I kind of had a realization of like language is not even necessary for deep connections, which was incredible. It's like, it's, it's, it's good for connections, but um, you don't need it. And I thought that was amazing. I agree with you. I mean, think about just the universal gestures and phrases mm-hmm. that we all have. Um, there was a student, I don't think he was with your group, Keelan. Yes, he was. He was? Yeah. The artist? The artist? Yes. 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 So you remember Kaylin uh, did a lot of sketching. Kaylin, yes. Kaylin. There was Kaylin and Keelan, I believe. Yeah. So this was Kaylin. Okay. Did a lot of sketching and his favorite time to sketch was when we were on the mass transit. So he would sketch the faces of the people sitting, you know, in the seat standing. I I never saw this. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to show you something. Okay. (laughs) Dr. B's going to show me something. I I know in a podcast, people can't see this, but I'll explain it to you. Okay. This was one of his sketches. No. From China? 
Yes. He's wow. paper and it's a little girl with glasses on, a little Chinese girl with glasses on, reaching up to touch the finger of one of our students. She was inquisitive. She was curious. But they began by looking in each other's eyes. She saw that he was someone different. He noticed he put his hand out and she touched it. So the reason I share that with you is that that universal language that you just referenced Mm -hmm. of you can communicate with people just through that nonverbal communication. Yeah. And that's a barrier, right? The mm-hmm. minute people say, I'm not going because I don't speak the language. Quite the opposite. And I'm glad to see that you went to Thailand. <laughs> yeah, it was it was an incredible experience. I I just love people, Dr. B. It's one of the things I realized. I I'm I just love this a conversation and getting to know someone deeply, speaking about things deeply. For some reason, it's one of my like joys in life. And I discover that every time I have a conversation like this, I, I learn more about myself because I see, I get to see the world a little bit through your through your eyes, you know, or at least I can try to. Mm-hmm. And uh, each time I learn more. What's your gift? I'm going to repeat that. It's your gift. And I'm so glad that you are using your gift in this way. Not only do you get a lot of satisfaction and joy from it, but you take that same satisfaction and you reflect it when others are talking with you. So it's just a joy for me as well as I I think it is for anyone that you engage in these kinds of conversations because it's easy, it's smooth, and it's reinforcing. Well, thank you for thank you for that because it's uh, sometimes you know it's it's I mean it's great to hear. So I'm glad you you enjoy it. And you know that painting was a, of a Chinese girl, and and you said it was a, a black student, right? How was it? What was it like being a black person in China? Very different. Um, a lot of what I didn't expect, and not so much the curiosity. It did not bother me that people were curious, but when I think about how I looked to many of the folks when we were down. Where were we? Tiananmen Square. Mm. I think that's where, if I recall, individuals from all over China, all parts Mm. of China would come in. So you had a very diverse Chinese population right there in Tiananmen Square. And how I didn't see many people that looked like me, older with gray hair. You know, I kept looking for people with gray hair. Where's some gray hair? Where's some gray hair? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think what, what impressed me the most is that if I look unique to you mm-hmm. and you are inquisitive about me, it would be great if we could talk about that. Yeah. Right. What are your experiences? Uh, you know, what is your life like? Hmm. So in doing that, and I think that's the beauty of global experiences for students. Not only are you transformed by the fact that you are a visitor in their land, mm-hmm. but you're also experiencing their life. Then you come back 
with a totally different perspective of what people in other countries are like. Remember the night that we stayed in the village before we took <sighs> the Great Wall trek and how it felt like home with that family and we learned so much about them? Breaking down those barriers is something that everyone should experience because I think that really leads to taking a true um, stab at some of the inequities and the hate and the misunderstanding mm. that we are experiencing around the world. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, were you able to have any of those conversations with people who looked at you with this curiosity? Did you have some of those conversations? There was one lady, uh, she spoke fairly good English and her mother was with her and her mother seemed to be about my age. And she said, wow. my mother wants to touch your hair. <laughs> You know, and I said, that didn't bother me. I said, well, sure. And she touched it and she pulled it and she looked at it and she stretched it. And she just did a lot of <laughs> She said, we have never. And I remember um, hearing that many people in China will never see a person of color. Mm, yeah. That's in their lifetime. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think for me, communicating with her daughter and understanding how for her mother, that's something she probably thought she'd never see. And here wow. we are engaging in that. Did you ask her any questions? Were you I, able to, what did yes, you ask her? I asked her, I said, so do you and your mom live together? She says, yes, we're multi-family, a multi-generational family, meaning that it was her mother, of course, her and her husband, her daughter and her daughter's baby. So that's four generations, right? Mm -hmm. Living within one house. So I learned from her. And she said, we do that a lot because we family is very important to us. We didn't get to talk long because that was just doing a break where, you know, we moved around quite a bit. Yeah, we were always <laughs> moving. <laughs> I got to see how nurturing their relationship was. The grandmother really doted on the granddaughter and the daughter and the grandmother seemed to have a, I just kind of watched, seemed to have a little tension about what the little grandbaby could and could not do mm. because she was very inquisitive. So yeah, I had that one opportunity to, to engage with them and it really opened my eyes to how much more we're alike than we're different. Yeah. You know, this thing that you're talking about, uh, understanding and how it would, how it would take away so much of the hate and, you know, um, yeah, I just think the hate in the world, it, because uh, I don't know, it's in like in the middle of the conversation that it kind of dawns on you, like an epiphany almost. It's mm -hmm. like subtle that mm -hmm. you realize that you have this realization how alike you are, but mm -hmm. you're having two completely different experiences. And those experiences are coming because you were born and two completely different parts of the world, you know, where people believe different things, but you're still humans, you know, and you yeah. still want love. And that's why uh, for a lot of people, family is so important, but it's just people go about it different ways to get it. You know, it doesn't mean that one, one way is right or wrong. Mm -hmm. That's a great way to say it. I think you captured it very succinctly is that deep down inside, we're all human. Yeah. And human connections are important to us yeah and um i remember uh, in thailand when i went out to eat with some thai friends <laughs> and uh, i don't know why this was struck me 
it was so interesting because I was, um, we ordered our own like plates and then they were like, no, no, like, uh, they would put them in the middle of the table and they were like, <laughs> they told me they literally said this. They're like, well, eat Asian style. <laughs> like we're going to share it. Family style is what they meant. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I, I just, cause they used the word Asian style just to, <laughs> to cause they thought that's how I would think of it. And that's how mm-hmm. I would put it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, they were, they were telling me like, this is, well at least that group of friends usually ate like that like they would order dishes they put them in the middle of the table and then they'd they'd all share mm-hmm. um and for me that was such a like ah that was amazing because i had never ate like that not even i mean i guess sometimes in uh with family parties but it, you know it was just a different way to experience foods definitely i had never done it with friends mm-hmm. and I, I just love food. And for some reason that, that, <laughs> that struck me. So uh, yeah, very, it was big for me. It was big. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what did you learn about yourself after China? I mean, I know we've been talking about this, but is there anything else, uh, anything big that you came back or what did you learn about the United States through by going to China? Yeah. Now that's, that's the question. Hmm. I learned more about, us as Americans in terms of what we value and what individuals who lived in China value. Mm. And that came full circle for me when I took the group to Costa Rica. The same thing, how we as Americans see ourselves and our perspective on things. And here we are living in a community that values things that we dismiss mm. and how we take for granted. Like, like what things? Uh, just, mm-hmm. I think I get where you're going, but if, mm-hmm. if, like some specifics. Yeah. So in China, the one thing that I noticed, it did not matter whether we were, and I was big about the food too. I love those yeah. steamed dumplings, right? <laughs> All that. I was just like, what are we eating again? Right? <laughs> but, um, it didn't matter whether we were eating at a fancy schmancy restaurant or mom and pops, um, you know, a kitchen kind of restaurant mm-hmm. or a food vendor on the street that they took very seriously their work. I remember watching yes. the guy making the pancakes and how meticulous he was spinning that egg around on that stone. And I, I put, what I walked away with is we are such a rushed people in the mm. United States. We don't take time to smell the flowers. We don't take time to enjoy the moment because we're on to the next thing. And China taught me that. China taught me to slow down. It taught me that there's so much beauty out there that I've overlooked. Yeah, you just pass by it, you yeah. know, because you're so uh, you're so focused on where you need to be instead of where you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Costa Rica, I came back transformed because we were focusing on sustainability, realizing again about me how much we waste. Mm. 
you know, I stopped buying the 24 uh, bottle, plastic bottle cases of water. You know, each one of those is a plastic container that has to be disposed of. Mm-hmm. When I came back with this renewed sense of simplicity in my life, my. that I don't need a lot to be happy. Yes, this is something that you discover abroad. Mm-hmm. What was it that you saw specifically in Costa Rica and that you experienced that 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 uh uh, inspired this new life of simplicity. Mm-hmm. We had a chance. One of the projects was to work with a, a gentleman named Professor Umberto. And, Umberto. Yeah, <laughs> Professor Umberto is a biologist, and he actually built an aquifer that wow. fed, that actually uh, provided water to their local community. The community that he lived in, they were tired of paying that expensive money. I mean, the money for the expensive water that they were getting. So he decided, well, we've got a rainforest right above us. Why not build an aquifer and supply our town with water? So we got to work alongside Professor Umberto. And he showed us how he built this aquifer and how the the water was caught. And uh, they used their system of distilling the water and filtering the water and take and he would um, he would test the water to make sure that the water was drinkable and potable. All of that. Wow. When we finished that experience with Professor Umberto. We realized there are places where you can get fresh water without having to go to a big box store and get cases of water mm-hmm. and be sustainable. So that's simple. I mean, he talked to us about how important it was to take care of plants because plants provide the environment for our world to survive and to exist. And if we are doing things that are going against what they call the order of life, mm-hmm then we will be without those simple pleasures that are so rich in a sustainable world. Wow. And and how did he say that people can be more conscious of taking care of plants? So we actually did, um, what do you call it? It's not like pruning, but we were pulling uh, all of the weeds that were choking the young plants that were growing. So in this dense rainforest, Our job was to take these uh, holes and take these uh, poles and pull away vegetation that was actually um, uh, um, I wouldn't say choking, but that's kind of what it was. They were wrapped wrapped around these young trees that could not grow. And the more that they were wrapping around, the less likely that those trees would grow up to be mature trees to provide all of the shading and all of the vegetation that is needed to protect that rainforest. Wow. Yeah, that that's I think my mom's going to love to hear this because she's always loved plants and she's had plants all over the house and she's always been so conscious to take care of them. Like every time, like every Sunday, almost every day, I think she takes care of all the plants she has, but very consciously. And yeah. and what you're describing reminds me of that of like, you know, not just it's not like you're doing a chore. It's like you're doing it for a purpose of helping something else. Mm-hmm. 
So you really can't see, but I'm going to turn my screen around. Mm -hmm. You see, I have all these plants in my house. Oh, yes. Yes. My mom would love this. <laughs> and that's because we peacefully coexist. They take in our CO2, mm -hmm. right? And they bring us oxygen. So why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> I love it. I love it, Dr. P. Yeah. What was the food like in Costa Rica? I haven't been. I need to go. <laughs> You must go. I must uh, go. I need to go so many places, go. Dr. V. You must go. The good news about Costa Rica, it's a short flight. Yeah. Okay. It's a very short flight. And the life is very simple there. Very simple. Uh, we were in a little town called Heredia, which um, was close to San Joaquin de Flores. Mm -hmm. And it's a town where everyone walked everywhere. So wow. the, the food were all of the restaurants are all neighborhood restaurants. So every day you'd have these beans, like little black beans, whether you had it with eggs in the morning or cheese, which was a, a big staple for breakfast. So I love breakfast. <laughs> and then uh, in the afternoon, the restaurants would always have some kind of meat that was in a gravy. So I'm like a gravy girl. I love gravy. <laughs> so whether it was chicken or it was lamb, it did not matter. Uh, a lot of dishes that had sauces with them. Mm -hmm. But the one thing I loved the most was the fresh fruit. Oh, oh. man, it must have been amazing. Because I I had a coconut in Hawaii and it was like out of this world. There was a pineapple. I don't know what it was. It's different when it's when you're getting it straight where it grows. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Was, I like what you're getting in your stores here. <laughs> what was your favorite fruit you had? The favorite fruit that I enjoyed mainly was the pineapple. It was the pineapple. Oh, man. Yeah. And uh, a lot of us started to move towards the papaya. You know, I'm not big yeah. on papaya, Me but neither. I, 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 I learned uh, to try it. I took the risk and I developed a taste for it. Uh, just she would, the, the uh, Instituto where we held our classes, one of the ladies every morning at 10 o'clock, she'd come in with this would look like a machete. Oh and she'd cut <laughs> all this fruit with bananas and uh, pineapple and strawberries and watermelon. Oh, it's just amazing. And we every could not morning. wait. Wow. Yeah. So by 9.45, everyone was like, okay, is it time to go yet? <laughs> <laughs> had a, just you know, break for class because no one had their mind on anything but getting that fresh fruit. <laughs> wow! Oh my God! I really want to go. Other than China and Costa Rica, have you been any other to any other countries um, immersively? Like where you lived there for like a month? No, no. But I'm looking forward to more. Where do you want to go next? You know, Dr. Moore had invited me to go to Cape Town, South Africa. Mm, and unfortunately, I was not able to go. But that sounds like an, one of the next places I'd like to go. Yeah. Um, I went to Cape Town with Dr. Moore and it yeah. was it was incredible. The seafood was amazing. And we were in this township where we had like South African, genuine South African food. Oh my God. I don't know what I tasted, but it was, I couldn't believe that those flavors were possible because they were so different from what I had. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I have to mm -hmm. go, Dr. B. Oh, I think I'm going to have to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you got me thinking a lot about Costa Rica. Um, we're coming up on an hour here. I just have a few more questions. Um, and, um, you know, again, talking about food, you did mention dumplings in China. Is there any any food items that you miss from China? Yes, I miss the whole fish. The whole 
the whole fish. I don't remember. So remember we were in the rooms and some of you went up on that little balcony and the lazy Susan kind of thing where all the food was in the center and they would put this fish, this whole fish that was cooked in front of you. Oh yeah. And we all used our chopsticks to pull the meat away from the skeleton of the fish. I miss that. I miss the, the pecking duck. Oh yes. Well, you also tried, didn't you try the scorpions? Oh yeah. That was, uh, did you try the scorpions? No. Dr. B, come on. Where's the risk taking? Yeah. I think that that's kind of where my line was. I've had been a little bit longer. I probably would have tried it. Oh my God. I was so excited for the, for the scorpions. When Mm -hmm. I figured out where that market was, I was like, we're going, we're going. (laughs) What did it taste like? It was actually really good because the scorpion fried, you know, the little scorpions fried. So basically it was like a little chip. There was, it was all crunchy. So it was all crunch and they put like chili lemon powder and oh. it just tasted like a chili lemon powder chip. The gross ones were the silkworms. Now those were gross <laughs> because those would burst in your mouth. <laughs> Those were disgusting. See, you are such a risk taker. I'm so happy to hear that about you. (laughs) I just, I couldn't imagine leaving. I know you can get, I mean, you don't go to China for scorpions, but I don't know why through my research, I found that market Mm. and I was just, I couldn't leave without trying Mm. it. You know, you're asking about food. The one thing that I have maintained to this day is my love of fresh vegetables and mm. rice. There was one dish, if you recall, it was just sauteed celery in this wonderful sauce. So I will saute vegetables and just have it with rice, which is a healthier way of eating anyway. Mm. I don't know when I've eaten in the fast food burger. I mean, wow. that just, that whole lifestyle just has gone away. I don't have a desire or a taste for it, but. Did that happen after yeah. you went to China? Mm-hmm. It sure did. You know, it's, it's a thing really like, I don't know what it is because I also experienced it in, in, in Thailand. It's the use, their use of sauces. It's mm-hmm. just, it adds so much flavor to just things that we would consider. I mean, at least me growing up, I would consider it like broccoli gross, but no, mm-hmm. you add these sauces and it's just, oh, it's the most delicious thing ever. You don't need any protein. Mm-hmm. So I completely get you. Yeah. Would it, do you have a recipe? Do you have a favorite recipe that you use for like vegetable sauteing? Yes. Yes. So I'm a big broccoli person too. Mm-hmm. So I saute, well, I'm, I love garlic. So the ah, first thing that yes. goes in my walk is the garlic, right? Yeah. And then I throw in the broccoli. I've begun to put a little cauliflower in there too, red and green pepper. Gotcha. I also put in, uh, which is kind of strange. Have you seen the shaved uh, Brussels sprouts? Uh, stores. No. Well, now you can get Brussels sprouts and they're shaved and it looks like tiny cabbages, which okay. kind of reminded me of that saute uh, dish of uh, celery. I did try that dish with the mm-hmm. five uh, spice uh, five spice powder, but I wasn't able to get the reduplicate. I was, wasn't able to duplicate the taste, mm-hmm. but the stir frying is always broccoli. And snow peas, and I also put snow peas in it. Snow peas, just are they just regular peas, or are they different? They're flat, kind of like little fat flat pea pods. Okay, okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. 
That sounds mm-hmm. delicious. The garlic, you definitely need the garlic because I, I love cooking. So I was just, I'm interested. I'm going to try that out. I'm going to try that. Out. What, would, what would you say? Because I, I'm, uh, you know, the reason I'm doing these, uh, talking to several professors and I'm talking also to people I studied abroad with, you know, like other students, mm-hmm. is because I really want to convey the message of how important it is just to have, go live and immerse yourself in another country, you know, whether it's studying or living abroad. Um, but what would you tell the students who are not going to college? Perhaps they didn't go to the, they didn't have the opportunity. Would you still advise that they have some sort of experience abroad? Um, you know, if, if, it, if they can make it happen. Mm-hmm. Many uh, K-12 schools are looking more and more into providing abroad opportunities for students. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, And for our undocumented students, you know, that's always been a challenge. But I often say our own United States is a place of discovery. Right. Yeah. And leave here. Right. We Mm -hmm. can leave here and we can go to San Francisco and we can have all kinds of fun foods. Right. Because of the different ethnicities and the diversity. Right. We can go to Seattle and have some of the freshest seafood we'd ever want. Right. So I think what happens is. Getting away from what's familiar not only broadens your taste, but it broadens your perspective. It provides you with a different way of living. And I think that's why many people are expatriates. They visit a place. It's a new way of living. It's refreshing. It's kind of like a way to start over. Mm. It's more simple. So I think when you find that you're in that space, you clear your head. And I think that's what an abroad experience does because you can't go to another country with all these American assumptions and assume that what you're doing here is going to happen over there. Yeah. So it not only does that for you, but it helps to broaden your thinking when individuals bring you different perspectives of which you've never heard. Mm. Now before, oh no, that's not going to work. No, we can't, we've not done that before. And that's that space that we get in where we're already in our own heads. But the more you branch out and the more you experience what's different and find out that it's just as effective, not more so than what you thought it would be, the more willing you are to engage with individuals with different ideas, different points of views, different ways to solve a problem, as well as different ways to work together. Gotcha. Wow. And last question here. I think, uh, you know, besides traveling, if you could uh, advise all graduating high school seniors, if you could tell them one piece, give them one piece of advice, what would you tell them to do more of, or what would you, what would you tell them? Give back to your community. Hmm. And your community doesn't have to be your neighborhood, but give back to someone who needs you. I think you sometimes as young people, you feel that you don't have that value. You don't have that um, opportunity or you may not have that capital to help someone or to assist someone, but you are just as capable and sometimes more so to give back to your community before you leave home. Because when you come back from another place, you are transformed and you're not that person in many ways that you thought you were but you come back with a different perspective. So before you leave home, always give back and treasure those memories. Wow. 
I, this is, I don't know, that hit me really personally because I, I sometimes still, I mean, I think like I'm not good enough. Like I don't have, <clears throat> sometimes I think I have to do way more to like help other people out. I feel like I have to build businesses and have some sort of more like, I don't know, success, like, and somehow, I don't know what the, what the line would be, but, and I've been thinking about this lately. So, so thank you for that, Dr. B. I think um, mm-hmm. I'm going to start acting on that more. Um, it can be B- small. It doesn't have to be big. It mm. can be small. The impact is what's big. Mm. Right. Yeah. Dr. B, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I'm really honored to have you on. I think we had a wonderful conversation and just thank you for taking an hour out of your day to talk to me. Well, I can't tell you how much it means to me, not only to connect back with you on a personal level, but to just see how much you have accomplished in your short life. And I can't wait to hear more about all you're doing. Thank you so much, Dr. B. If people want to reach out to you, they can find your email on the university website if they have any questions. That is correct. Gotcha, gotcha. And um, thank you so much, Dr. B. To everyone listening, we'll uh, talk to you later. Take care. Hey there. If you enjoyed this episode, well, green light. New episodes of The Dose of Caesar come out every week, so make sure to follow and subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. If you feel that more people should listen to this podcast and share this episode with your tribe. If you want to connect with me, or if you just want some extra doses of Cesar, of Caesar, of Cesarine Bingui, then you can sign up for my free weekly email newsletter called The Caesar Encyclopedia, where I share what I learn every week. Or you can reach out to me on Instagram at the dose of Caesar. We'll see you next time.